We're in 2 Corinthians, and we're talking about significance. There's a man who died in 1900 named Friedrich Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche was one of the great philosophers of the Western world, supposedly. And uh, he, he had this teaching, one of his two main teachings. It was called Eternal Return. And, and Nietzsche said that we, we live the same orbit of existence for a certain segment of time with us every day, every month, every week. We live it time after time after time after time. We just don't know it. It's called eternal return. Just time after time after time after time. So he said there's no unfolding of history. There's no definitive end of history. There's no definitive end of your life. You just keep on living it time after time after time after time. I mean, you know, that's what he said. And, and conversely, the biblical worldview is that there is a beginning to life and there is an end to life. And that we will answer at the judgment seat as believers for the way we've lived our lives. So life takes on incredible gravity. Paul in this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 has said that even though the outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And then he says, for our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And he comes to chapter 5 and he says, we know, we know that if the tent that is our earthly body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. There is an eternity. And because of the greatness of the sins that have been forgiven by the work of Christ, and we live with our explicit aim. We live to be pleasing unto the Lord, verse 9. Then verse 10, last week. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the, 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 the gravity of living. The significance of living, that I am a responsible moral agent. As a child of God, I am going to give an account for the way I've lived my life. It's not this circle that goes on and on and on without any purpose. No, there is a definitive begin and an unfolding drama and an end. And this, this impacts the way you live. For example, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and they're made up of of Gentiles and Jews. And the Jews were coming and saying, you know, shouldn't we observe kosher food laws? And shouldn't we observe feast days and fast days like Moses told us to do? And so Paul, this recovering Pharisee, says this in Romans 14, verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I've just read a book recently, a man wrote a reflection on his life, and he had four or five postulates, and one of his postulates was this. Early in life, I realized this is not my birthday party. <laughs> I don't live for myself. I live for the Lord. And he says, for this end, Christ died and lived, and, and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. Then why do you pass judgment on your brother or, or you? Why do you despise your brother? For you will all stand before the judgment seat of God. See? The judgment seat. And then in verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself 
to God. So as I, as I look at this, I say there, there is a gladness and gravity to the Christian faith. He says, as he goes on in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Therefore, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others or plead with others. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord. So, gladness and gravity. Um, it's not like gladness and gravity. It's gladness and gravity intertwined. It's like, not like hydrogen and oxygen. It's hydrogen and oxygen come together and they make water. So I want to say this is when we have the gladness of the gospel and the gravity of understanding our responsibility in response to the gospel, in light of the gospel, it produces the reverence or the fear of the Lord. And that's what I'll talk about this morning as we go on with this passage. The fear of the Lord. My question is, do you fear God? Do you reverence God? Do you stand in awe of the character of God, His name, and His work? Do, do John Bunyan... 1688, he died. He said, the fear of the Lord for the believer is the salt that seasons all of our duties. Proverbs. In Proverbs 28, it says this. Verse 14. Listen. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity or trouble. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord always. He says in chapter 1 that, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then he says, get wisdom. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is talking about continuing strong in the Lord. And this, this is what it says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and fear or awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He says, let's worship God acceptably. And I ask myself, do I reverence God? Do I glory in Him? In Proverbs 5, it talks about an immoral woman and it says this, she gives no thought to the end of her life. She's just living for today. There's no gladness or gravity. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5 says that, that a, a widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And see, my, my thesis, don't miss it, is the fear of the Lord is the result of the gladness and gravity of the gospel. Gladness, sins are forgiven. Gladness, I'm in Christ. Gravity, I am responsible. Now look at this, Romans chapter 8. Verse 15, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, craven fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, and as sons we cry out, Abba, Father. There's no fear of slavery, craven fear. Now listen. Do I fear being cast aside by Abba Father? No. No. Do I fear being put outside of the orbit of His love? No. I'm in Christ. Do I fear the adversary plucking me from the hand of the Father? No. Never. 10,000 times no. I am in Christ. 
I am secure in him. Listen to John chapter 6. Jesus says this regarding the eternal purposes of God. Listen, verse 38. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you've looked to the Son, if you've believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you're in Christ, and he will raise you up on the last day. You are his purchased possession. I do not fear being cast out. I do not fear Abba Father ever saying, be done, be gone. Never, never, a thousand times, never. But does it cause me to often stop and say, Will I miss out on the blessings of knowing God because of disobedience or lethargy or inattention? Yes. Do I ever stop and say, am I building on the glorious foundation of Christ, like we said last week in 1 Corinthians 3, using wood, hay, and dirty straw instead of gold, silver, and costly stones? Yes. Do I fear that I will not hear on the day of judgment well done, good and faithful servant. Yes. Do, do I go to 1 Corinthians 9 and where Paul says, you know, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. Do I ever think I may not finish well? Yes. See, the, 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 the gravity, the gravity of knowing Christ. So I'm just going to go through a few verses and make a few points and we're this is so important. I, as I pondered this, I thought, you know, when's the last time I read a book, or I, I did this week, on the fear of God? When's the last time I preached on the fear of God? For, for believers, not the craven fear, but the fear of misrepresenting the name of Christ, the fear of not going strong because of who Jesus is. So in 2 Corinthians, this book we're studying, he says in chapter 7, he goes through some promises that God has given us about being separate, being his people, and he says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the fear of God. ESV says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I said to myself as I read that, when's the last time I did something out of reverence for God? When's the last time I went out and clothed someone, fed someone, went to prison in the name of Jesus? When's the last time I turned off a show because I said, a, a child of God should not watch this. It's what I do and what I don't do. See, and then Psalm 112, gladness and gravity. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. See, that's gladness and gravity. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Gravity. Who delights in his commandments. Gladness. And then in Jeremiah 32, it talks about God restoring his people and bringing a people whose laws will be written on their hearts. 
into his kingdom and is fulfilled in Jesus. And he says in chapter 32, verse 38, he says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way and they may, that they may fear me forever. Not slavish fear, but the fear of awe and adoration. And this fear will be for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Listen, dads, if, if you want to give your child a blessing, reverence the living God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the, the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Reverencing God. The early church, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and then the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. You see, see that? The fear of the Lord, gravity, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, gladness. The gravity and gladness of God. Do you reverence Him, brothers and sisters? I mean... Paul says that therefore, because we see the judgment seat of Christ, therefore, out of the fear of God, we persuade men. We live as unto the Lord. Now, John Bunyan. Let me tell you about John Bunyan. John Bunyan died in 1688. I'm going to show you a quote in a second. Uh, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was imprisoned for 10 years because he preached the gospel. So let me tell you about John Bunyan. John Bunyan... Uh, was married, and his wife's whole dowry was two or three books from her daddy. And they were books about how to um, live righteously as unto God, but didn't preach the gospel. It was all about what you have to do. And so Bunyan, who was a voracious reader, read these books, and he said, I'm just going to try harder. And he sold pots and pans. And one day he was standing in a yard, in a small yard, and he was a prolific cursor, cursed all the time. And so Bunyan was standing there talking to some friends, and he was just letting it fly. And there was a lady who lived there who came to the window and said, young man, you are the most ungodly, vile man I have ever met in my life. And Bunyan stopped and he said, you know, she was an ungodly, vile woman. So if she calls me an ungodly and vile, I'm really bad because she's really bad. And so he said, I'm going to try harder. Started going to church more. And didn't work. He's going down the street of Bedford one day, and there are some women sitting in a door frame outside of the house, sunning themselves and knitting, and they were talking about the glory of sins forgiven by the work of Jesus on the cross. And Bunyan said, I stopped, and I eavesdropped on their conversation, and I realized I knew nothing of what they were saying. He was always so picturesque in his language. He said, I felt as if these women were on one side of a beautiful mountain, sitting in a beautiful floral pattern with the sun shining upon them as they luxuriated in the blessings of God. And I was on the other side of the mountain, in the sleet, in the rain, in the cold, trembling with fear. I had no idea. And then, next chapter, he kept on going like that. And he picked up a book by a guy named Martin Luther called The Commentary to Galatians. And he read it. Same book John Wesley read. 
And he had a, a, a warming of his heart at Aldersgate. But, but Bunyan read it and he said, I kind of got it, but I didn't get it. I kind of got the gospel, but I didn't get it. This is a series of years. And, and then he said, I read the book. I kept listening. I kept talking. I kept speaking about sacred things. And this is what he says. One day it happened. One day as I was passing into the field, these words fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And he says, the eyes of my soul saw the same, at the same time that Jesus Christ was at God's right hand. And there, he said, is my righteousness. I saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made me right before God, that made me better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was found solely in Jesus Christ himself. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said, that sealed it, that did it. He saw that his right, his right standing with God was not what he had done or accomplished or heard. It was strictly the work of Christ. And he said, that did it. John Bunyan. So he wrote this book I've read this week called The Fear of God. It's only 60 pages. But this is what he says. And this is very, I want you to see this. He says, would you grow in this godly fear? Then labor, even always, to keep the evidences for heaven and of your salvation alive in your heart or upon your heart. For he that loses his evidences for heaven will hardly keep slavish fear out of his heart. Now let me explain that. When he says keep alive the evidences of heaven in your heart and your salvation, he's saying do not forget the gospel of grace. Do not forget that you're saved not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Do not ever forget that. He says, because if you do that, he said, my experience was, if you do that, it is unavoidable that you will not fall into slavish fear or despair. So you've got to keep the gospel alive. You've got to keep the, the reality of Christ and what he's done for you alive in your heart. He says, that, that's what you've got to have. The gladness and gravity of the gospel. And do you have that? Do you have the gladness and gravity? Do you say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine? And do you also say, God, let me live for you. I want to be resolved to be yours and live as unto you. Do you fear indifference? We're going back to Nietzsche. He says this, that when he came up with this eternal reward, he says, on the one hand, he thinks that an attitude of indifference would surely arise from this, seeing that there is no ultimate point of life or life, no meaning to life. There's no last judgment. There's no entering into paradise. In general, there's no end of history. One might come to regard his life as nothing more than an absurd game. And he did. And his children and his grandchildren philosophically did. Life is absurd. We say life has purpose. People are important. Life is an unfolding drama and it has an end. See, that, that, the Apostle Paul, right before he talks about buffeting his body, he says this. It's just very striking to me. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. I became all things to all men in order to win some. I came all things to all men. And he says, I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. He says, I do it in part because God blesses me. 
And so life is filled with incredible purpose. Life is filled with meaning. The gladness and the gravity of the gospel. So we come to the text. I'll do this very quickly. The, the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And it says in verse 20 and 21, we'll do this later as well, but it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul stands up and he says, you know, we plead with you to understand the glory of the message of sins forgiven by the work of Christ upon the cross. He says, we are therefore ambassadors for Christ. What we, we represent Christ wherever we go. I read this week, I didn't read the article, I just read the headlines and thought, good grief. President Obama goes to Nelson Mandela's celebration. They have various services. And he, he is sitting with the Dutch, Danish Prime Minister and the British Prime Minister. He does a self-photograph with his iPhone. You see that? Everybody see that? And man, people were just beating him up. And I thought, give the guy a break. Come on. And then I thought about myself. I thought, you know, when you, when you leave the U.S. and you're a president or you're an ambassador or you're a congressman or you're with the trade delegation, you represent our country. And whatever you do is going to be scrutinized. The Bible says here that we are ambassadors for Christ. The way we talk, the way we care for people, the way we reach out to those less fortunate, the way we ask for justice for the oppressed, the, the, the way we, we are ambassadors. And, and our message is this, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. You see, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about what an ambassadorial lifestyle looks like. He says, therefore, because we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But we just speak openly. That's what an ambassador does. He just, he lives us unto the Lord. You are an ambassador for Christ. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. You're an ambassador for Jesus. It's, it's a startling statement. Do you see the gladness and gravity of the gospel? And then he says this, chapter four, 5, verse 11. He says, but what we are is known to God. And then he says the next verse, he says, we, we, we are people who do not boast about outward appearance, but we boast about what's in the heart. And I'm sure Paul was thinking about very likely a little story in the in the Old Testament that you've heard many times, but there's a man named Samuel who is a prophet, and the king, the, the, Israel is 
going down under Saul. And God says, he's not the right king. There's a man that I want to sit on my throne who has a heart for me. And he said, he's the son of a guy named Jesse. He says, take your, take your flask of oil and go to Jesse's house and anoint this son as the king of Israel. And, and Samuel says, well, God, if, if Saul knows I'm going to do it, he'll kill me. And God says, do it secretly. So he goes and knocks on Jesse's door. He says, Jesse, this is wild, but I'm, going to hear, I'm here to anoint one of your sons to be the king of Israel. Wow. And so he says, could you bring in your boys? And he brought in his oldest boy. See, in those days, the eldest was the one who was the most blessed. And so he brought in his, the eldest boy, and he was a good-looking guy, broad-shouldered, had it together. And Samuel thought, hmm, wow, this will work. And God said this, he said, Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature. For God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. So okay. So he said, do you have another son? Oh, yeah, he brought in number two. God said, he's not the one. Brought number three. He's not the one. And Samuel's getting frustrated. He said, do you have any more boys? He says, yeah. He, he brings in seven boys. Four, five, six, seven. God says, no. And Samuel says, do you have anybody else? He said, there's one. He's the youngest and he's tending the sheep. He says, bring him in. David comes in. The Bible says he was a young boy of ruddy appearance. And then one of those precious words in the Bible, God says, arise, anoint him. He is the one. God looks at the heart. See? That's what Paul is saying here. When you live with gladness and gravity, you're ambassadorial, and you understand that God looks at the heart. And very quickly, when you live... With gladness and gravity, you, you, you look at people that you love and you care for and you're praying for and you say, I'll do anything. Look at verse 13. For, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God's sake. If we're, out of our, if we're in our right mind, it is for you. See, the detractors are coming and said, you know, Paul can't preach. He's not good looking. doesn't have it together. And Paul says, listen, if we're out of our mind in preaching the gospel, we do it as unto God. If we're in our right mind, we do it for you, but we're doing it for you in the face of God. We, if we're beside ourselves, we are, we are doing it for God's sake. When I, when I grew up, listen, when I grew up, I had a younger brother, and when my mom would get frustrated with us, usually with me, my, my, my younger brother is a better man than I ever was or will be. He really is. That's, not, that's just true. But she would look at me and she'd say, I am so angry with you, I am beside myself. Did you ever hear that growing up? I didn't realize she was just quoting the Apostle Paul. As a young boy, I want to say, now metaphysically, Mom, how can you be beside yourself? But at that point, you did not say anything. You just ducked and hid for cover. And about that time, she sometimes, she'd sometimes say to me, you know, I'm so frustrated with you, I'm going to move to Kalamazoo. I thought. And then when I was seven years old, I was looking at basketball scores. There's really a place called Kalamazoo. And I thought, wow, Mom's, Mom's going to move to Kalamazoo, you know. But she'd be beside herself. Well, really what that means is, that, that, what that means, I'm, I'm so overcome, I'm just overcome emotionally. And she had many rights to be overcome. 
That's what Paul's saying here. It's an idiomatic phrase that we've used for, for centuries. It means I'm just overcome. He says, it says, if I am overcome, it is for the glory of God and it's for your welfare. Now, this Christmas, think about family members that have heard the gospel a hundred times. Maybe the 101st hearing will be the time that pushes them. Remember Bunyan? Bunyan heard it time after time after time. Or family members that have never heard. Or friends. You are an ambassador for Christ in your office, in your neighborhoods, in your family. Why need to hear that? Behold the gladness and gravity of the gospel. Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a high calling to represent you to our culture. Thank you that we say with the Apostle Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ. Lord, help us to walk in the gladness and gravity of the gospel. Help us to understand a sun-like reverential awe of you. Thank you that you're Abba Father. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross that is enough. But Lord, let us live with gravity because we live as unto you. And we praise you and we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.